This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. We're, go- we're turning to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And a few weeks ago, we started a new series in this book called Power in Weakness. And Paul has this very striking vision of the Christian life that is about encountering Jesus in the way of the cross. And we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're reading from verse 12 of that chapter into chapter 3, verse 6. Let's listen to the Word of God together. Paul writes, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the Word of God. I'm sure for all of us, the idea of living the victorious life is deeply attractive. Who does not want to live the victorious life? I would much rather dominate life than be dominated by it, as so often seems to be the case. I would far rather be reveling in the thrill of victory than enduring the shame of defeat. We would all love to live the victorious Christian life. And yet, so often circumstances, opponents, The evil one, our own sin, they irritate us, they frustrate us, they defeat us. And would to God we could just sweep those things to the side and march onwards in utter triumph in Jesus. To go from success to success in our marriage, in our families, in our parenting, in our school, our career, our ministry. To live the victorious Christian life. Victory and triumph were certainly something the Romans knew about in the empire under which Paul lived. And they particularly had this custom of the Roman 
triumph, a procession that celebrated yet another victory on the frontiers of Rome. And everyone knew about these triumphs because they were engraved on their coins. They were built into the triumphal arches at the entrances to different cities. They were written about again and again in Roman literature. It was propaganda for the imperial power of Rome because Rome always wins. And an imperial triumph would look something like this. In the center of the procession, as the focal point, of course, was the emperor himself in his chariot, wearing his purple toga, his crown on his head, an eagle-crowned scepter in his hand, and his face was painted red because the emperor was acting as though he was the god Mars. He was surrounded by his generals and his victorious soldiers, carrying with them the spoils of their victory. And people would carry along in this procession billboards and placards on which would be graphically depicted scenes from the different battles of the Roman conquest. The procession would march through the winding streets of Rome up to the temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill. And the crowds would be cheering and chanting, celebrating the emperor as victor and savior of Rome. And in our text, as the ESV translates it, from which I read, it speaks of God leading us in triumphal procession in Christ. If you're reading from the old King James Version, it may talk about God causing us to triumph in Christ. And those translations create the impression, the very agreeable impression, that we are on the winning team, that we are among those soldiers or even lieutenants or generals in the army of Jesus sharing in his victory, getting to pose with the trophy, with the victorious team. I wish that was an accurate translation, because it's the one I would far rather live under. But the Greek word used in literature at this time, in this way, only ever refers to being triumphed over. To be part of the procession, yes, but not as a member of the winning team, but as one of the defeated captives. That's why the NIV translate, the, translate this, thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. And so in Paul's thinking, we are the defeated enemies of Jesus who have been captured and conquered by him. And the fate of captives in these processions was not a pleasant one. The Romans would take defeated kings and generals and noblemen, and they would drag them behind the emperor's chariots in chains, often with a rope around their neck. And they would be jeered and insulted and pelted with filth by the Romans as they made their way through the crowds. The Romans designed this procession to extract maximum degradation and humiliation from those that, that they defeated. So that anyone who had even the slightest thought of resisting Rome or rebelling against her would remember the terrible, shameful end 
that they would endure as a captive in one of these triumphal processions. The luckier captives, the less prominent ones, were sold as slaves to be worked to death in the salt mines. But there was a worse fate that awaited the more prominent captives, the generals and the kings, because the climax of the triumphal procession at the temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill involved sacrifices of thanksgiving to the gods and then the ritual execution of the captives before the cheering crowds. It's a shocking image of the Christian life that Paul has in mind. And this is a very unsettling way to tell your testimony. If someone asked you to share, a non-Christian said, what is it like walking with Jesus? What is it like living the Christian life? We would probably use language of peace and joy and wonderful transformation and, yes, even victory as we described how much following Jesus improved and elevated our lives. Paul, on the other hand, describes his own discipleship, his own life, his own ministry as being dragged as a slave behind the conquering chariot of Jesus awaiting his execution. A shocking and a gruesome image of the Christian life. Because Paul saw himself as a conquered enemy. He had been someone who fiercely, zealously opposed Jesus with all that he had within him. He calls himself the chief of sinners as he dragged Christians to trial and to death. But on the road to Damascus, Paul had been violently overwhelmed by the power of the ascended and exalted Jesus. Jesus did not call Paul softly and tenderly. He did not knock politely like a gentleman on the door of Paul's heart. Paul's conversion, like every conversion, was a power encounter, a home invasion in which Jesus invades the home of the strong man, binds him, and takes possession of our lives. We all have different stories of coming to Jesus, and some may be quite rough and abrupt, and some may be slower and gentler, but all of them involve the risen Jesus showing up and taking command of installing himself as Lord over our lives, and he conquers us in loving power. I came to know Jesus in 1997 when I was 18 years old, just after my 18th birthday, and I remember confessing my sins to the Lord and feeling him pushing me down to my knees. Not something I wanted to do. I did not want to humble myself. I wanted to come to Jesus on my own terms, and he said, no, you are bowing the knee before me. And that is exactly what Paul had experienced. He was a conquered enemy, and he also knew himself and often described himself as a slave of Christ. A strange thing to put on your business card or on your LinkedIn profile. But again and again, Paul describes himself as a servant of Jesus, as a slave of Christ. Someone who was no longer his own. He was no longer in possession of himself. He was owned by Jesus. Because Jesus will not allow himself 
to be added to our lives as the last piece in our project of self-actualization or self-expression. You know, there's one thing I'm missing. If I just add Jesus to my life, then things will be perfect. Faith in Jesus means total surrender to him, of him demolishing everything you've built your life upon and inserting himself as your foundation, as your superstructure, as your everything. And coming to Jesus as Savior always means bowing in recognition of his absolute mastery over your life. And that's what Paul knew himself to be. And as a conquered enemy, as a slave of Christ, Paul found that his ministry and his life with Jesus meant being led around in defeat and in shame. In 1 Corinthians 4, his first letter to this church, he wrote that it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. That's what it means to be first in the kingdom of God, to be an apostle, to be condemned to die in the arena. Because Paul knows that as a disciple, he is called to walk in the footsteps of Jesus to Calvary. There is resurrection, there is an empty tomb, there is glory and there is victory, but the path always and only runs through the cross. And Paul lived his life with Jesus with a rope around his neck, ready for execution. In fact, he says in this letter, I die daily. As Paul went on with the Spirit, he found the Holy Spirit conforming him to the image of Christ. Discipleship is becoming more like Jesus. And Paul experienced a profound fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings. The only way to know Jesus, to deeply know Jesus, is to walk on the path that he has laid out for himself. And so Paul's life and ministry were about suffering, weakness, humiliation. And this made, honestly, this made a poor contrast to the other Christian leaders who were showing up in Corinth. Powerful, successful, eloquent men. These men were living the victorious Christian life. And they invited people to join them in their success and in their triumph. And Paul, by comparison, was suspected and criticized for the weakness in his ministry. You know, Paul describes at the beginning of our passage being in Troas, which is on the northwestern corner of Asia Minor. It was the last jumping-off point to head over to Greece and to Macedonia. And while he was there, God opened a door of fruitful ministry for Paul. People were coming to the Lord in this city, and he was starting to build a church. But Paul was so worried about the deteriorating situation in Corinth that he, he abandoned this open door. He was under such emotional distress because of this strained relationship that he was simply not able to walk through the door that God had opened to him. How could a true apostle of Jesus allow 
emotional distress to sabotage his ministry in this way. But God had given Paul the eyes to see that it was actually through these frustrating experiences, through this agony, this affliction, this distress, that the Holy Spirit was actually working in those things. Not delivering him from those things necessarily, but even in the very weakness and frustration, Paul realized that somehow the glory of Jesus is being manifested through my weakness. There was a Scottish hymn writer about 100 years ago named George Madison, and he was a man who was born with very bad eyesight. He grew up with quite, quite blurry eyes, and while he was in university, he went blind completely. And there was a young lady who was hoping to marry, and she decided, you know what, I, being married to a blind person is just not something I can handle. So she broke off the engagement, and Madison headed into his adult life, abandoned and blind. And he wrote a hymn called, Make Me a Captive, Lord. Make me a captive, Lord, he wrote, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. It's the strange paradox of the Christian life that we conquer through weakness and that we encounter the glory of God through humiliation. We find victory through defeat. Now, none of us are Paul. None of us are apostles with a special calling from Jesus to take the gospel to the nations. But yet, because we're disciples of Jesus, God has his way, his own way of inscribing the cross into each of our lives. And it will look different for every single person here, but God will etch the cross of Jesus into your life. Jesus himself said, pick up your cross and follow me. Count the cost. There is a cost. Because when I bid you to follow me, I'm bidding you to come and die, to put the rope around your own neck. Because the only way to save your life is to lose it for my sake and the kingdom. So here's the question I think this passage poses for us today. In the frustration, the defeat, the disappointments, the humiliation of life, are we able to recognize the Holy Spirit working through those things? Does the Spirit only work through success and victory, or does the Spirit somehow, is He present? Even in weakness and defeat. Here's Paul walking in this triumphal procession as a captive, and he says while he's doing that, while he's being led as a slave, God is using us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. Actually, as part of these triumphal processions, there was incense that, that was being wafted over the crowds, but Paul was probably also thinking of the sacrifices offered to God in Jerusalem. This is a pleasing aroma of Christ to God. And so as we're being conformed to Christ, I think Paul's saying, we take on his aroma. We begin to smell like Jesus. And in fact, when we stand before God, he's smelling 
Christ and his sacrificial death. Then, God also uses that aroma in our lives to spread the gospel, the message of the cross, far and wide. Our lives, if we are living by the Spirit, they spread an odor that comes suddenly into people's nostrils and startles them and evokes a response. And as we march by, as the captives of Jesus, the watching crowd, they catch a whiff of something, and people react to the smell, the aroma of the gospel, and they react differently depending on what God is already doing in their lives. To those who are being saved, where the Holy Spirit is already working, this is the smell of life. The Spirit is opening their eyes to the glory of the cross, and they respond in faith in Jesus. It's an attractive fragrance. But to those who are perishing, do not have the Spirit of God in their lives, they react with disgust. It's the smell of death. It's, oh, it's a rotting corpse coming by. And they don't, they don't want this at all. They don't want to be defeated by Christ. They don't want to be made his slaves. They don't want to be sent to their execution in conformity to their death. That makes no sense to an unregenerate heart. Why would you want that? Why would you want to be humiliated and suffer and die? And so they harden their hearts to this gospel and they seal their own fate of destruction. For the message of the cross, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, it's, an awesome responsibility that we all have to be the means to have lives that somehow determine people's eternal destiny. If you are a Christian, God is using you in people's lives to attract or to repel people from Jesus. An awesome responsibility. And we should ask with Paul, who, who is sufficient for this? Who feels competent? Who feels up to the job? Who's equal to the task? And Paul certainly does not feel equal on his own. Just like Moses called to summon the people from Egypt, said to God, I'm overwhelmed. I can't do this. I don't have the ability to speak in this powerful way. But Moses was nonetheless called and empowered by God to be the agent of God's salvation, just like Paul has been. So in fact, through the power of God, Paul does feel equal to the task. He is competent. He is sufficient through God's sufficiency because he's standing confidently in the power of the Spirit, not in the power of the flesh. That's why Paul says, I'm not like those guys over there who peddle the Word of God, the hucksters, the business people, the marketers who are trying to sell the gospel like any worldly product. You know, the problem with marketing the gospel is that the cross does not market well. No one wants an instrument of torture and death in their life. No one wants it. So, if we want to market it, we've got to adjust the gospel. We've got to sand off the sharp corners. We've got to change it and trim it to meet the felt needs of the consumer. And then it is no gospel at all. It's been shorn of power, and it's only another worldly, fleshly product. You know, when we give into that temptation to sell the gospel that way, 
were confessing our lack of confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to foolishly stand in the valley of dry bones and prophesy to them to stand up and live because we don't really believe that God is willing or able to bring about resurrection. And so we try to preach the gospel in the flesh. But Paul is not that kind of deceitful person. His opponents accuse Paul of a lot of things, but no one will accuse Paul of trying to make the gospel popular. No one will accuse Paul of trying to make the gospel popular. That's the whole problem with Paul, really, in their minds. He's just so brutally honest about the Christian life. Why would anyone respond to the message of the cross after Paul has preached it and shared his own terrible testimony? Why would anyone come to Jesus with that kind of story? It would take a miracle, which is exactly what Paul expects, because that's exactly what he's seen in the lives of these Corinthians. A miracle has happened, because when Paul first showed up in Corinth years ago, with this foolish message of the cross. Amazingly, there were people who responded, who felt something stirring and moving in their hearts. They found themselves being powerfully drawn by the Spirit of God, seized by the hand and pulled into the kingdom, into a new relationship with God, a new community marked by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul doesn't, le- doesn't need a letter of recommendation Paul doesn't need credentials from other people. Paul's credentials are the Corinthians themselves. That's the only proof of his ministry that he needs. And really, it's quite ridiculous and insulting, really, that people in Corinth are now demanding that Paul get other people to vouch for him. Has the relationship between Paul and Corinth really deteriorated so badly that now this is what it's come to. The evidence of Paul's ministry, the evidence of any of our ministries, is lives that have been transformed by the Spirit of God. Yeah, lives that have been changed by the Spirit. And despite all their problems, and these people have a lot of problems, Paul can still point to their lives point to this strange gathering of people worshiping Jesus in this pagan city, he can say, your very lives are a public letter from Christ written by the Spirit of the living God. Only the Holy Spirit can validate ministry. It's not about how many degrees you have or how many years of experience or how large your programs are or how many people are following you on on social media. Only the Holy Spirit validates ministry. The question is, do we see signs of the life that only He can bring? Do we sense Him moving among us, even in our weakness? Or are we trusting in human credentials and in large budgets and skilled programs. Paul realized when he was in Corinth that he was experiencing the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. 
where God says, you know, the problem with the old covenant is that it's just a law, an external law. You need a new covenant where the law is actually written on your hearts, where your hearts of stone are taken, about, taken out and the Holy Spirit actually makes, internalizes a desire to love God and love neighbor. And that's what was happening in the church in Corinth. People were coming alive from the inside, something that could only be produced by the Spirit of the living God. It wasn't that Paul was powerfully and eloquently beating over the head with the Bible, commanding them and forcing them to obey God. There was something happening spontaneously within them where they actually wanted to follow Jesus and they wanted to obey God. Here's a helpful illustration written some, by some old guy, S.H. Hook. He wrote, A vine does not produce grapes by an act of parliament. A vine does not produce grapes by an act of parliament. Yeah, the Georgian parliament can pass whatever the laws they want with the most stringent punishment, but that will not bring a single grape off any vine in this country. The grapes are the fruit of a vine's own life. And so is the conduct which conforms to the standard of the kingdom. It's not produced by a demand from outside. Not even God's demand. It is the fruit of that divine nature which God gives as the result of what he has done in and by Christ. Even God's own demands will not produce a life that pleases him. But it's him giving us a new nature, a of changing us from the inside as we open ourselves up to the spirit of Jesus. You know, that's why it didn't matter for Paul that he was weak, that he was defeated, that he was frustrated, that by human standards he was a small and contemptible figure compared to people around him. In terms of the, world, the standards of the world and the powers of the flesh, Paul, Paul was small fry indeed. But Paul was operating by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God was using Paul's smallness, his weakness, his sufferings, his frustrations to manifest the glory of supernatural ministry. And it's the presence of this life-giving spirit that gives Paul the confidence to go on, even in the failure and discouragement of his ministry. You know, Paul had come to realize that his very weakness was actually the victory of God at work in his life and in his ministry. And the proof of that is the Spirit's transformation of the believers in Corinth. So perhaps, brothers and sisters, instead of being discouraged by our own weakness, our own failure, our own frustration, the obstacles that we keep on banging our head against and can't get through, the open doors of ministry that God has opened that we are simply too distressed and, and discouraged to follow through on. God is not hampered by our weakness. In fact, our very weakness gives him scope to display his glorious power. And our weakness, in fact, is an invitation. It's not an indictment. God is not angry at you because you're weak. He's not frustrated or irritated by you. Your weakness is God's invitation to trust in him and seek the Holy Spirit 
to give us lives, to imprint the cross and resurrection of Jesus on our hearts so that somehow we will be used to glorify Jesus, to testify to his victory, and to be used to bring many, many people to him. Our confidence is not in ourselves. We're all very naturally tempted to be confident in ourselves and in the gifts, the relationships, the experiences that God has given us. And God will do things in our lives, not because he hates us, but because he wants to bring us into genuine confidence in Christ. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion. A meal not for the strong, but for the weak, not for those who are living the victorious Christian life, but for those who are living the defeated Christian life, who long for the triumph of Jesus in his sufferings to be manifested through us. And so we need the grace of God, the grace that God is about to offer us in Holy Communion in a few moments. So let's bow our heads, and then we're going to respond and worship before we partake of the sacrament together. Glorious God, we open our hearts and our lives to you. We come to you as those who have been conquered by the gracious power of the love of Christ. Lord, the way of the cross seems hard, and it is death to our flesh. And we pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit to see that it is, in fact, the way to resurrection life. Oh, Lord, we need your grace so badly. We are weak. We are small. And... Uh, we seem so feeble and fruitless. We may feel, in fact, quite unworthy to come before you and partake of this meal together. We thank you that you nevertheless are a God who has given his own son for the unworthy, for the sinful, for the rebellious, to conquer your enemies, to make us your sons and your daughters, and somehow, mysteriously, gloriously, paradoxically, to use our weakness, suffering, and death for your glory and our everlasting joy. Imprint that on our lives, we pray, dear Father, in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.